is Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, Kodo listeners. This is Matt Hoyce from the Kodo News Team. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Off the Record on this, the last night of November 2021. Tonight, the word of the evening is snow. It's that it's that magical white stuff that uh, our area needs to just make this time of year the best it can be. And um, for anyone in and around Telluride, you know that we need it. The forecasts, the forecasts have not been looking great. So tonight we are going to be talking all about the white stuff and we are going to collectively pray to the snow gods to to bring some of it in our forecast in um, the coming days. Um, and just before we get started, actually, today is also Giving Tuesday, and um, Kodo wanted to extend some thanks to some very generous listeners who donated um, on this Giving Tuesday. So a huge thank you to Todd Brown, Marky Knopp, Suzanne Chevins, John Wontrobsky, Thomas Preston, and Steedman Bass, to, to all of those wonderful people. We got donations from you, and we really... We really appreciate it. Um, that money is supporting literally everything you hear on the airwaves. So thank you so much for donating. Listeners, if you want to donate, it's still Giving Tuesday. Head to KOTO.org. Donate. You can also donate tomorrow. You can really donate anytime, any day here at KOTO Telluride. So thank you all so much. And that money is supporting programming like this and interviews like this that we are doing right now. Joined in studio for our first guest, we have with us Brandon Green, who is the Director of Snowmaking Operations and Capital over at uh, Telski. Brandon, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Brandon, you are the, the person right now really responsible for a lot of the snow we're seeing on the mountain. You're out there with your team uh, making the stuff on the mountain. First question, I mean, just how are things going? How are things looking right now from your end of things? Well, we're looking really good for our delayed opening. Friday, nine o'clock. Um, you know, we have top to bottom skiing on lift four. It is wall to wall. It's full depth. You're not going to hit any rocks out there. Um, the Grano beach is getting all tuned up. It's a amazing amphitheater right now. The park guys are out there putting the finishing touches on the train park. That's just above. So, I mean, we, we have, I feel really good about what we're going to open with. It's about 50 acres or so. I think it's going to be music to people's ears that there's at least, you know, top to bottom on lift four is a good thing to start with. <laughs> yeah, we'll have the meadows as well, um, the full boat meadows, as well as um, we haven't really ever opened with double cabins before from the parking structure in Mount Village down, but um, that looks like a sure thing as well. Awesome. I have to ask, I mean, <clears throat> I truly know very little, really nothing about snowmaking. Um, so the first question, I mean, is, how is it that you can make snow and have it stick when we've been having days like we have where there's, you know, highs in the 40s or the 50s? I mean, how does that work? Um, that's a pretty loaded question. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there, in the evening, there's typically enough time that we can get the system on, get ramped up, and actually get some good production. And, you know, when we first start out in the season, we just got a big brown mountain. Um, but as we start to make a little bit and cover a little more and a little more and a little more, we're actually turning it white and we're cooling off some of those areas. So, you know, as about two weeks ago, we actually had enough down and made that uh, we were noticing, and it's typical, 
that you'll actually be colder in those areas that we had previously made snow and made the whole area white and it's it's just a bit colder so it actually it helps progress i guess you could say um and you know obviously if something's white versus black it's going to melt less during the day so we've got that going for us so the more snow you make the better it gets for snow making in a weird way yes oh, yeah wow. so whenever we move trails and go from an area that we're finishing up on to something else that has absolutely no coverage we suffer for a few nights for sure yeah well can you help me and our yeah. listeners understand i mean what is the work that you and your team are doing to to make snow can you just outline the operation how many people are out there how long are you working i mean what is snow making at telsky what does it look like um well our we have about 35 uh, 34 guys on or in gals on staff um and we work in uh, 12-hour shifts and there's round the clock coverage so there's a day shift and a night shift 11p to 11a and 11a to 11p and a typical crew is a foreman and five others so there's six and we have some technicians that are on kind of in between those shifts as well and um yeah i mean it's it's a lot of work there's a whole bunch of setup that goes into getting gear in place and setting it all up hooking up hoses plugging stuff in making sure everything is just right um and then you know come evening time right about now actually i think uh spoons crew is up there on sea forever right now uh heading to the top of nine to go turn on sea forever it's one of our next spots um you know in the evening we actually turn it on and then throughout the night it's just continual management um you know everything out there is hard to get to it's cold it's dark it's loud um and it just needs constant attention. Um, but we move stuff around and make big piles and then call on the cats and push it out and create great scheme. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like a really hard, really cold, really intense job. How did you get into this? Um, I mean, I got in it for the love of skiing. Um, when I was uh, probably about five or six, my uncle, he used to give me a Christmas card every year, and it had a little coupon in there that he would just write and it said good for one free ski day anywhere you want to go in the state i lived in maine at the time and so that was like my favorite christmas present you know out of the whole season was to get that <clears throat> and so he'd bring me to you know whatever place i wanted to go to sunday river shawnee peak something like that and we go ski so he he's responsible for my snow profession ultimately um so it got me into skiing and then you know as soon as i got out of high school i just moved to Colorado and got right into the industry straight away. But how did you jump from liking skiing to getting into snowmaking, which I feel like is a very particular thing. I mean, I can see a lifty or ski patrol, but snowmaking is a particular beast. Well, as a young uh, ski junkie, you need some way to support your habit, right? And so, um, you know, I needed year-round work. And uh, I was in kitchens, but kitchens aren't really cranking in ski towns in October. Um, I was doing some mountain operations work in the summertime, Sawyer crews and that sort of thing. And the snowmaking guy hit me up one day in a locker room and said, hey, I think you'd be a good fit for snowmaking. You should give it a shot. And that was it. I mean, I got on a snowmobile and was cruising around the hill and, you know, seeing these huge whales and using all of this gear and cats and everything else. And I was hooked. <laughs> well, so then how did you end up doing this in Telluride? Um, well, things were going pretty good for me in Summit County. Um, and I had a guy come up to me and say, hey, I work at Telluride. We need some help over there. Um, you should come down and interview. So I did. And I 
skied around here in Telluride and I had skied into Bear Creek and and you know I just fell in love with the place I mean what's not to love the town the mountain the area the people uh it was a no-brainer <laughs> and I mean you know I do feel like snowmaking I mean it's I don't know if I would say it's the glamorous life, but in a strange way, it is kind of the, I mean, the base of everything that happens in our area in the winter at the end of the day does kind of depend on, on the work you do. Does it feel that way for you? I mean, a lot of our guys definitely feel the pressure of, you know, not like, uh, well, uh, of, of having to get this made so that we can open in a timely fashion and kind of get everything kicked into gear up here. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a it's a it's a low profile gig. I'll say that. Um, I mean, it, at you, you mentioned cold earlier. You know, in the middle of the night, you'd think, yeah, 20 degrees in the teens, you might get cold. But you know, our guys have a lot of gear. Um, you're moving constantly. You know, you're actually sweating more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's I mean. I don't know. This time of year right now, is there just like a pep talk you guys do before you go out? Because I do. I mean, it is kind of you know. If this doesn't happen right, then then the mountain doesn't open. So I'd imagine you do need to really be on it. Yeah, uh, every day at shift change during the morning shift change from at 11 o'clock, um, a ton of information is exchanged. How the previous night went, what's broken, what ran, what barely ran broken, what's running really great, where things need, need to go, what the next moves are, what snowmobiles are operating, where the cats are going to be pushing, what ski patrols got to fence. I mean, it's just a litany of items that need to be you know gone over and the team kind of organized and ready to do it all over again yeah i want to get into the nitty-gritty a bit i mean can you go into just a bit of i mean the science and really the the technicalities behind snowmaking i mean what are the conditions you're looking for that actually makes it so this can work i imagine if you have a night when it's like 50 degrees there's no point in making snow so what are the conditions you're you're aiming for right well we can't do it at 50 degrees um <laughs> You know, we need, uh, we typically go off wet bulb temperature. So wet bulb is a combination of the dry temp. Like right now it's probably 33 degrees outside. We'll, we'll call it 32 and then humidity. So if it's um, 32 degrees outside and there's 50% humidity, you'd actually have a 27 degree wet bulb temperature. And that's like our baseline to, to start snowmaking. Mm -hmm. um, you can push it to like 28 and a half, but that's kind of pushing the envelope and it's not really worth it for what you get mm -hmm. um, amount of input to, to actual snow on the ground. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where we need to start. Um, you know, we need a lot of other things to line up to. We need to have the water. We need to have, um, the right wind direction, you know, um, when storms blow in and, and blow out, usually during the storm, we'll kind of hold back a little bit cause it's super windy. It's gnarly out there. You know, things aren't going where we want them to go. Um, but then usually right on the tail end of a storm, you'll get the real dip in temperatures and it usually gets pretty calm and stars come back out and that's where when we we really throttle up and, and hit it hard yeah we look for those downhill winds at night and i mean my personal favorite is probably about nine degrees why well um you know every snow gun's a little bit different but um they all can run at different capacities individually and so at nine degrees anything that's running out there you can pretty much max out you know some of our fan guns will max out about 130 gallons a minute uh, when they first turn on at that 27 degree it's about 16 gallons a minute mm. so you know at nine you can really let things rip and 
and it all works pretty well. You know, at 27, if there's one little tiny thing that's wrong, if one gun isn't nucleating just perfectly, if there's one little nozzle that's the spray pattern screwed up, it shows in the in the snow yeah. and the quality. And if it's lower than nine, things can also get screwed up. Yeah, and if it's lower than nine, it's really difficult. I mean, things start freezing up really, really fast. If you have any problems and you have to turn off water or, or move things around, it gets it gets extremely difficult. You have to work really fast. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to work with your gloves off in sub nine degrees. <laughs> Listeners, if you're just tuning in, it's Off the Record Tonight's show all about snow. We have in studio Brandon Green, Director of Snowmaking Operations over at Telski. If you had a question or comment, give us a call, 970-728-4333. What percent of snowmaking is science and what percent of it is art? Um, <clears throat> I would say it's probably 70% science, 30% art. Um, the, the science part, I mean, there's just no no getting around it. You know, there's those certain laws that we have to abide by that you just cannot change. You know, evaporative cooling and, you know, amount of horsepower and throw and pressures and velocities and, and those sorts of things that just are what they are. And you have to do your best to work within the parameters. But the art part of it would, you know, be you know, building infrastructure, putting in it in the, the correct place, you know, utilizing experience year after year after year and seeing weather patterns move in and move out of this valley and on this mountain and and putting, you know, certain pieces of infrastructure in just the right places and knowing at just the right time to, to run those units, um, uh, you know, trying to just kind of orchestrate the whole chess game of a system that we have up there you know it's not like we can just say okay it's cold enough turn on the snowmaking and everything everywhere just turns white right i mean we do have some capacities that we have to to deal with and we can't do it everywhere all at the same time so you know that chess game that's kind of the art there into knowing how much and where and when and when to move in when to move out when to move on to the next piece you know, is Mother Nature helping us or not? Like, years like this year, I mean, there's areas that we depend on natural and it's just not really coming around. And so that alters our plan a little bit as well. Yeah, and I'd imagine this time of year, just that lift four area is the priority. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we do, we have, we, you know, we, we ha lift four right now, get open, get open with the best possible product that we can and then spread people out within that four pod and then we start looking into, you know, the loop and the town side and those other connections. Yeah. You mentioned there's these the scientific absolutes. You can't change these laws. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me when you say that is, is climate change and this reality that we're living in a world that's getting warmer and snow. We're, we're getting less snow as a result of global warming in different spots as a result of climate change. Um, I mean, are you all thinking about that? I mean, really longer term, like 10, 20, 30 years out, are you thinking how to make this as sustainable as possible in that different world? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking at that in our long-term planning and our, you know, system capacity sizing overall and how and where we add particular snowmaking infrastructure. Um, we're always looking at it year over year on efficiencies. You know, how can we get every last snowflake out of you know, the given units of input, whether that's, you know, diesel or electricity or fuel. Um, it's, it's a continual effort and it's top of mind for sure. 
Um, yeah, well, and also, but I guess the question I'm also getting, I mean, to what extent can snowmaking compensate for the impacts of climate change, do you think? That's a, that's a tough one, I, you know? Um, I mean, it's definitely going going to help keep us skiing here for a while here on this mountain but um you know it's essentially storage right so if we're going into maybe not so much drought stricken winters but drought stricken springtime and summer times you know the water that we're utilizing now is storage as as, as a snowpack mm-hmm. in this watershed which is you know released downstream as it melts in the springtime I mean, I, uh, I think there was uh, a, a year or two back, I was reading a few articles about um, somewhere in the Northwest, they were actually trying to sustain some glaciers with snowmaking to try and just kind of keep them glaciers. <clears throat> seems really futile. It, yeah, that's I'm not sure. It seems like an uphill battle. But. Um, we got actually a listener texted in some questions. Two questions. First one, do you ski on your days off? Second question, does his little girl know her daddy makes all the snow on the mountain? I do try to ski as much as I can. Um, you know, I've been a, a ski bum like my whole life, so I've had my fair share of knee surgeries. So I try and pick and choose my my days. Um, and yes, she. We were driving in the village the other day, and she was looking at just the the snow on the side, you know, and in the trees <laughs> at the side of the road there on the boulevard. And she's like, "How did you get the snow up there in the in the trees?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd imagine there's a strange, uh, I don't know, contradiction here in that in the years when we get a lot of snow, do you all just not do snowmaking? No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to cover up, right? And, um, you know, a lot of our terrain goes down into the lower elevations. I mean, you look at the meadows, even the, you know, the bottom of the four. I mean, there's so many undularities, service roads, bike trails, golf courses, uh, major roads, uh, you know stairways all kinds of things that need to be covered up and you know if we didn't have snowmaking to ensure that that initial pack was there you know we'd be lucky to get some of those places skiable to the expectation that we have by march yeah um well, we are wrapping up the end of this segment but i do want to kind of close with the the headline news at least that we started with which was that you said opening this friday still happening Lift four is looking good, skiable from top to bottom. That's that's what we got right now. Yep. Um, you know, nine o'clock on on Friday. You know, the first corduroy passes were getting laid uh, last night and this morning, and I gotta say, it looked pretty good. Awesome. And um, how how else are you feeling about you know at least the next month or so? I mean, do, what what can folks look forward to in terms of how stuff shaping up on the mountain for the next few weeks? Uh, you know, we're gonna do everything we possibly can for the next few weeks, whether it snows or not. So. Um, you know, our next kind of areas of focus are um, Boomerang and Lower Misty, like I said, to get people spread out within the four area. And then our big focus is going to be on the loop. So getting in and out of lift five and up on lift six and see forever all the way back into the four area. Terrific. For the next few weeks, at least, I think we can call you Jack Frost and, and hope that your work goes well, along with your, your 30 plus snowmakers. Um, Brandon Green is the director of snowmaking operations and capital over at Telski. Brandon, we're really glad that you came in here, took some time away and, and hope, I guess, that you're going back to the mountain to make more snow. Yeah, that's where we're headed next. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, awesome. Well, I hope that you can stay warm. Listeners, stay tuned. We're going to be back in just a sec with our next guest from the Colorado Avalanche Information Center to talk a bit about the, oh, the dangerous side of snow. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a sec. This is Off the Record. 
And we are back. Sorry, we could not let that jazz cover of Let It Go play to the very end. I know some of you were singing to your heart's uh, delight listening to that. If you're just tuning in, it's Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoyt from the Kodo News team. Tonight's show, all about snow. We need it. We're not getting it. Let's hope this show brings it. Who knows? We just spoke with Brandon Green. He's the director of snowmaking operations over at Telski. Just went off to the mountain to continue making more of the good white stuff. We're now joined by another Green. No relation, I am told. We have with us over the, the magic of Zoom, Ethan Green, who is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Ethan, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Matt. It's uh, great to be here with you. Um, we just spent the last 20 or so minutes talking, I think, kind of about the, the joys of snow, um, but also really important to, to, you know, get you on to talk about the more challenging side of snow and also the, the more dangerous side. Um, you know, we just had a, a caller call in during our, our segment break kind of saying that, um, you know, there's not so much snow, so we don't have to worry about avalanches quite just yet, which, yeah, true. Um, but there is snow in other parts of the state, and um, there's a good chance that we're going to get a lot more snow later in the season, fingers crossed which also means we're going to have to be thinking a lot um, more about avalanches. So glad that that you're able to join us. I, I guess I am just curious to throw out a broad question. I mean, how are you all over at CAIC thinking about avalanches and, and avalanche danger for this upcoming ski season? Well, that is a pretty broad question. I guess first I'd just like to reject the fact that uh, that we're not part of the fun part of snow. I think uh, <laughs> a lot of what we do is... Uh, is trying to get people to understand snow and, and and the avalanche hazard part of it so that they they can enjoy it whether that's uh you know traveling or you know getting to work in the snow or, or hopefully uh, uh playing in the snow um you know as far as us at the cac you know we're sort of going through the same thing that we do every year um you know whether there's a lot of snow or a little snow um we sort of plot through the year in in the same way um it's certainly a lot more fun when there's uh a lot going on and it's been um, kind of quiet although uh it's been it's more in the central and northern mountains than the southern but it's been sort of um interesting and disheartening a little bit with just a little bit of snow and wind uh the the, the number of avalanches that we have been seeing over the last two weeks oh, you're saying you've seen a lot even though there hasn't been much snow well, it, what we see is uh, things ramp up pretty quickly. So the underlying snowpack is pretty weak. Um, you know, the last couple of days, there's really not that much going on. But like last week, you know, we got kind of three to six inches across the central and northern mountains with a little bit of wind. And that was enough to produce uh, slabs and uh, people were out getting caught in avalanches. Hmm. Well, let's go over some of the basics of avalanches for our listeners. You know, myself included, who I would not say I'm an avalanche expert. I mean, can you just go over kind of the basics of how avalanches actually form and, and the science behind it? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a there's a lot to it, and avalanches really cover kind of a, a wide array of uh, of natural events. But um, you, you know, the avalanches that we're typically interested in as recreationalists are are mostly slab avalanches, and so uh, this is where a, a cohesive um, slab of snow breaks off from the hillside and goes rolling down into the valley. Um, in order to get that to happen, uh, we need that slab of snow, some some hard layer of snow resting on something that's a little bit weaker and then we need it propped up on uh on an angle that's steep enough so that when it detaches from the underlying surface it won't just fall into the hillside it rolls down into the valley and so that's a, a slope that's typically between 30 and 45 degrees steep hmm and you how long have you been in the avalanche 
business monitoring game? Uh, right around 30 years. I think oh, wow. I'm, I'm either, I'm right around, I'm 20, 20 to 39 years. I can't remember um, exactly where I am at this point, but uh, it's really the only thing I've ever done uh, very well, at least. Well, well so I, where I'm going with that is, I mean, has the nature of avalanches, the way we understand avalanches, I mean, how has that changed in the, in the three decades you've been doing this? It's changed uh, quite a bit, really. Um, you know, our understanding of how avalanches form and how they release um, has changed quite a bit. And, and really, uh, that rate of change has only increased. I mean, I would say in the first, you know, kind of 20 years of doing this, um, the amount of knowledge that we gained about the details of avalanche formation and release increased a little bit, but but nothing compared to you know, the last 10 years. And, and uh, you know, we, we host a fall seminar for avalanche professionals every year. And we had a speaker who was presenting um, some new information about that, that he had figured out uh, just in the couple of days before the seminar. So, so we're continually, uh, you know, learning about that. Um, a lot of how we deal with avalanches and avalanche forecasting has, has changed. Um, and of course, the weather is a really big driver of avalanche cycles. And, uh, you know, what we know about the weather and our ability to predict the weather has changed dramatically in those uh, 30 years as well. Hmm. well <laughs> it makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as we're, you know, you're talking about avalanche forecasting, how precise are, are we able to actually be in, in predicting these things that are pretty complex and, and site specific? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and um, you know, like most things with avalanches, um, you know, it, it depends on really what you're trying to predict. So, like the forecasts that we put out for recreation uh, that, that most people are familiar with, those are really general forecasts. So, uh, we're talking about kind of the character, the avalanche, uh, general locations like elevation bands and, and aspects of slopes, um, you know, where people can trigger these avalanches, um, and we are pretty good about capturing those general patterns, but those predictions don't tell you like a particular slope that's going to avalanche. So uh, taking it from, you know, like our northern San Juan zone, which extends from, you know, Rico to, to Lake City, and then downscaling that to say like a slope in Bear Creek, um, that takes a lot of additional information. So. The forecasts are relatively good, um, you know, say in the 80, 80 percentile range, um, but they are of a very large scale. Um, when we start looking at, uh, you know, like some of the work that we do with CDOT to predict individual avalanche slopes, um, there we're really looking at predicting an avalanche and the type of avalanche in one avalanche path. So we really are focused on that, that slope scale. And it depends a little bit, you know, we have places where um, you know, highways where the, we're not passing through those areas as much and we're not as aggressive with them, uh, you know, where, you know, we're still kind of in that 70 to 80 percentile range. And then we have other roads where we're much more aggressive, where, you know, we're up in the, the 90 percentile. Hmm. You mentioned um, Bear Creek, and I didn't ask you to prep this, so this is going to be a totally out of the blue question, but I'm curious. I mean, can you talk a bit about the specific avalanche characteristics of, of the Telluride region and kind of the beautiful but powerful mountains that we have in our area 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the San Juan Mountains are uh, an amazing place, and the, the Telluride area specifically, is, as all of the listeners here know, is a, is a really a, a amazing place. Um, you know, just because the, the San Juan Mountains are unusual um, in that they're, they're very steep, um, they're very far south, and so um, there, a lot of what happens in terms of avalanche formation in that area is really dominated by solar radiation or radiation exchange. Um, so people that studied avalanches in that area, say in the, the 70s, dubbed it as a separate snow climate, a solar radiated snow climate. So that would be a little bit different than what we'd see, say, in the Sierra or the Wasatch Mountains or really in other parts of, of Colorado. And it really has to do just with this, it being so far south and such steep slopes uh, that radiation exchange is just really critical to understanding what happens there. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, back in 2019, we had, we had two avalanche fatality events over here in our region within just a few weeks of each other. So, I mean, it is some, some powerful stuff that it's to be respected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in recent history, the number of fatalities in the area has actually been less than other parts of Colorado, but unfortunately that trend is, is changing a little bit. And I think a lot of that is, really just due to the popularity of, uh, of winter recreation and, you know, more people in the area, more people getting out into the mountains and the, you know, the San Juan Mountains, um, again, a very steep area. And so um, just a lot of really avalanche prone terrain and big terrain, especially compared to some of the other ranges in the state. Yeah. Well, we want to get some, out some news you can use as well. And, and this is by no means an, an AVI one course or anything like that. This is not a certification, but I mean, are there just some, some really core basic pieces of avalanche safety information you think is important for, I mean, just anyone out there to know, even if they, they aren't planning on doing serious backcountry skiing, but just what are the, the basics of avalanche safety that, that could save your life if you end up in that sort of unfortunate situation? Well, we can certainly dig into that, um, you know, deeper if you want, but, you know, just from that uh, kind of high level or radio audience perspective, um, the most important thing that you can do is check the forecast before you go out. Um, even if you haven't been paying attention to the snow, if you know nothing about avalanches, uh, it'll give you just a, a place to start in terms of um, is this something you really need to worry about today, or is it something that um, is really less of an issue than maybe some of the other outdoor safety issues uh, you know you're you're going to face? If you are spending a lot of time looking at the snow, um, you know we have a lot of data, we have discussions about what the forecasters are thinking, and so there's there's a lot more information there than than just the danger rating. Um, getting a little bit of information so you have a head start on what the conditions are and and how to how to plan for the day is the most important thing to do. Uh, you know, next would be getting some training. A little bit of education can save your, save your life. If, uh, you know, you're visiting uh, the San Juans for the first time, uh, you know, maybe just watching an online video or some of the content that you can get on the internet. There's a lot of really good stuff out there right now. Uh, some tips and tricks, uh, that'll help you quite a bit. And then of course, if you're spending time in avalanche terrain, uh, carrying rescue equipment, so for everybody in the group, that's a avalanche rescue transceiver, uh, a probe pole, and a shovel. Um, you know, beyond that, it's really understanding um, how avalanches form and release in the terrain and the patterns that they form. And the, the most important thing is really to match your recreational goal for the day to the avalanche conditions. You know, we like to say that 
there's no routes, no ascents or descents out there that you should cross off your list completely, but you really got to make sure that the one you're picking for the day matches the avalanche conditions. And so sometimes, sometimes there's years where you can really go almost anywhere you want. Um, and other times there's years where you really have to stick to pretty conservative terrain. And last year was a, a really good example of that. So, um, you know, for, for that more advanced perspective, still just on the radio, um, you know, making sure your plan and the current conditions match is, uh, is an important. Yeah. We're, um, we're getting a caller in right now and we've not figured out how to hook up our phone lines to our zoom lines. So Ethan, you're not going to hear them, but I'll, I'll, um, describe what they're saying once they say it, but we're going to bring them up. Hey there, you're live on KOTO. What's your question? Hey, uh, Matt. Hi, Ethan. Uh, this is John Tuckman uh, with the Ski Patrol calling. I, uh, I don't have a question. I just have a couple of quick comments to make. Uh, first off, thanks very much to Ethan uh, and the CAIC for everything they do. They uh, put out a lot of really good information across the whole state, and it's kind of a thankless job. Um, secondly, uh, on that note, as Ethan said earlier, the North San Juan zone goes all the way from Rico to Lake City, and there's one backcountry forecaster covering the whole zone. So any of you that are out taking turns in the backcountry, it's really helpful to, to these guys if you can submit an observation, even if you're not digging a snow pit. Um, and lastly, uh, we're having the first backcountry chat of the season next Thursday, uh, December 9th at the library uh, at 6 p.m. And uh, the speakers are going to be Jeremy Yanko, who's the North San Juan forecaster for the CAIC, and uh, Bex Hodgetts, who's the lead forecaster for the Southern Mountains for the CAIC. So there'll be a lot more good information on CAIC products. Uh, how to get forecasts and submit observations next week. Oh, sweet. Thanks so much for all that, John. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for putting on the show, Matt. Oh, my pleasure. Have a good rest of your night. Yeah, you too. Bye. Ethan, that was John Tuckman over from uh, Ski Patrol offering his praises for all the work that you all do and, and also offering some some helpful local tips for all of our listeners. So you got some kudos over the phone lines. Oh, that's great. Um, but uh, John's a great partner. He's great to work with, and you guys are lucky to have him down in your area. Mm. Um, how many avalanches have you seen? Thousands. <laughs> yeah. What? I mean, frankly, because I've, I've actually never seen an avalanche in person. I don't know how many of our listeners have and, and, and whatnot, but I, can you just describe for listeners, I mean, I don't know, the impression of an avalanche and actually what it is like to, to witness something like that in person. Well, you know, avalanches, again, it covers just a really broad range, um, you know, so, you know, small ones, um, you know, are, are pretty, um, you know, from a skiing perspective can actually be kind of fun to, to ski through like a, a small, you know, loose snow avalanche, um, you know, large avalanches are, um, they are forces of nature. They are really impressive. The ground shakes, um, the noises they make. Uh, you know, they they create their own, um, not necessarily weather, but they, they push the, the air out of the way so they can create really strong winds. Um, they fill the air with uh, tiny ice crystals. Um, it's, it, it's, it's an amazing thing to witness, and you want to make sure that your um, 
you're not too close. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will say, actually, I, I mean, I've never seen an avalanche, but I mean, anyone who's hiked through Bear Creek knows, I mean, there's that spot where all those trees that were mauled over by an avalanche a few years ago. And I mean, even just standing in that, that aftermath of an avalanche is, is a, a humbling experience to say the least pretty spiritual, frankly. Yeah, it's uh, it really, I mean, it is truly a for a force of nature. Um, so, you know, seeing the aftermath, especially if there's, you know, tree destruction or, or gouging of the earth is, is pretty amazing. It's sometimes, you know, I've seen avalanches where there's, um, even significant tree dis- destruction, where it it feels very still where you are, um, but you can you can hear the tree snapping and see the the, the snow clouds billowing, and uh, you know sometimes you start to see that before you can really feel some of the other impacts of them. So, you know it's it's like other forces of nature, whether people have dealt with you know floods or strong winds or you know thunderstorms, like there's a lot of um there's a lot of variety there but but uh, when you see an impressive event like that what nature can do it's it's humbling it's an amazing experience hmm. well we're coming to the end of our time for this segment ethan um but before we wrap up are there any resources that you think are important to direct listeners to any places that are good for folks to go to learn more about this and, and just anything else you want to get out about avalanche safety well, certainly for current conditions, you know, um, the Avalanche Center is, is a great resource. You know, you guys have a lot of really good local uh, resources with uh, some of the schools down there and the, the Telluride Mountain Club. You know, I really encourage people to get involved with the community. Um, you know, the Telluride Ski Patrol is also, uh, you know, with John uh, calling in earlier, a, a great resource and just really engage some of the, the local people around there that have lots of experience and lots of knowledge. Um, use the the community that's uh, sponsoring avalanche education. Um, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but there there were some community seminars that were happening in the area that was with some really good material. Um, some of the work that's been done in Bear Creek with uh, the radio frequencies is also uh, a really important thing for for local people to uh, to use. And I and I think the Telluride Mountain Club is promoting a lot of that. So um, yeah, get engaged with the community. Talk to people about your love of the mountains and avalanches and recreation and uh, check the forecast and be safe and have a great winter. Oh. Well, Ethan Green is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. I imagine we might even have some other interviews with you coming on later in the season. We always like to, to check in over the course of the winter with you all. So this might not be the last we hear of you, but I'm really glad you can make it on tonight, Ethan. Well, thanks for the invitation. And yeah, uh, call me back anytime. We're, we're happy to, to show up and talk about snow. <laughs> Sounds good. Have a good rest of your night. Good night. Listeners, stay tuned. One more guest coming on, Heather Hansman, who just came out with a new book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. She's going to be on in just a sec, so stay tuned. This is Off the Record on KOTO Telluride.
out of that jazz cover of Skating by the one and only Vince Giraldi. Some, some great snow-themed music listeners. If you're just tuning in, it's off the record. I am Matt Hoysh from the Kodo News Team. Tonight's show is all about snow. We don't have it. We need it. We hope this show will bring it. We're going to see what happens. Earlier in the show, we talked with Brandon Green, director of snowmaking operations over at Telski. Just got off the line with Ethan Green, no relation, name spelled differently, um, director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. And closing out our, our whirlwind tour of the world of snow, we have with us again over Zoom, Heather Hansman, who is the author of a recently published book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. She's also an environmental columnist for Outside Online, and her writing has been in many publications, including The Guardian and The New York Times. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. also, a pro tip for listeners that this book has been selected for the, the One Valley, One Book program over at the library. So if you hear this and you like it, the library later uh, next year is going to be giving out some free copies. So stay tuned for that. We're excited for it. <laughs> um, Heather, I'm going to start off with an open-ended question because this book, it's, it's, a, it's a wild book in that it's like part memoir, part journalism, part like major philosophical treatise on skiing. I mean, you really, you really get in there. And so I just, I'm going to start off with an open question. We're going to see where it goes. What role has skiing played, um, in your life? (laughs) That, that feels like a major philosophical question. Um, and I think that that's really kind of at the heart of the book, this idea that, um, and I guess to give a little background, I'm somebody, I'm from the East Coast originally. I moved to Colorado to the Vail Valley, which I probably shouldn't say on the radio and tell you right, um, when I was 21 uh, to kind of chase this idea of being a ski bum and working in the mountains. Um, and that one kind of arbitrary decision to kind of like, you know, because I had been obsessed with skiing as a kid, really has shaped my entire life since then. You know, it's kind of impacted my job, it impacts my relationships, the people I spend time with, how I spend my free time. And that question kind of at the heart of that, this idea of why something is sort of inherently stupid and pointless as skiing could kind of grip hold so tightly for me and for so many people is kind of the thread that wove through this this book, which is about kind of this idea of being a ski bum and living the dream um, and then why it's not always so dreamy. Hmm. I'm surprised that you say that decision was was arbitrary. Looking back, I mean, is that how you feel when you were 21? It was just, you could have gone either direction. You just happened to end up at Vail, and it changed your life. Sort of, yeah. I think that I, you know, I had this idea that I wanted to move to the mountains and see what happened. What would happen? You know, I kind of told my parents I would probably spend a winter out there and then come back and get like a you know quote unquote real job. Um, I don't think I was. Maybe that's also just you know, the, the person I am and the person I was at 21, I wasn't, there wasn't a ton of kind of forward thinking and life planning in that. But, um, but yeah, it kind of feels like this pivot point that has shifted me from there. And I've talked to, you know, I moved out West with two of my college friends and we've talked about that a lot in the ways that that choice has really kind of, and we're all in different places now, but that has really kind of been a cornerstone for us and growing up and trying to figure out how to be people. And I think this idea that, you know, skiing, when I kind of dug in to write a book about skiing on some level, I was like, are people going to care? Is skiing, you know, is skiing interesting enough to hold the, hold the whole book? And I 
they, it felt like for me it was because it's kind of connected to all these other other strands. Well, and that was the thing I think that really first struck me about the book. I mean, the introduction alone, I was I was actually just stunned by how well written it is, how philosophical it was. And I think the thing that first struck me was she's taking this really seriously. Like this isn't, I mean, it's, it's a lighthearted book to an extent, but it really is a book where you're saying this, this is the thing that I've been doing for most of my life now. And it, it's like the level of like, there's a level of like epistemological meaning just simmering underneath all of it. Um, and I guess as you were writing it, was it hard to take skiing, ski bum culture that seriously in your writing or did it come absolutely naturally because that's what you'd been doing subconsciously for the last decade and a half or so? No, that was a that was a tension I definitely struggled with and kind of tried to figure out how to how to make it feel real and serious and also fun and weird and cuz like skiing is all those things. And ski, you know, skiing is also a major economic driver in Colorado. It's kind of it is it is fun and dumb and weird and it is also serious, but I definitely, yeah, I dug into, or I think in the writing process where you can often go down all these like, you know, deep, deep wormholes. One of them was, is anyone going to care about skiing? Is this important? And also I, you know, this book came out in the middle of this ongoing global pandemic and in the face of kind of this big public health global crisis, you know, is, is anyone going to care about skiing? Is it sort of like self-centered to ask people to think about that? Something I was thinking about a lot. Well, at the end of the process of writing this book, what's your answer to that question? Do people care about skiing and and should they? I, yeah, I think, I think people do. And I think, I think in the face of all the bad things, I think the things that are good about skiing, you know, like being outside, physical connection, joy, I think all those things are important. And I think that, there is something about the cultural history of skiing and the way it's kind of grown up in America and that kind of thing. I think that is sort of interesting and grabby. It's been fun. You know, the book's been out in the world for a couple weeks now and it's been really fun to hear from people and to kind of hear which parts people connect with or enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are, you know, like there are, you know, my mom really likes the history section, but there, I think there are kind of different pieces for for hopefully a lot of people. One of the sections that, that stuck with me was this kind of really deep psychological and like neurological examination you do of a ski bum. You really dive into it. Can you just talk a bit about the psychological traits that you kind of uncovered and the experts you talked to? I mean, just about what is the, the psychology of, of who the quote unquote ski bum is? Yeah, yeah. That was one of the, um, the most interesting things to dig into kind of research and reporting wise. And that was something that I hadn't, I guess, in kind of like framing up the book and what I thought the reporting trip was going to be like, that wasn't something that had been super front of mind. And that ended up being kind of one of the, one of the parts that I found the most interesting. And it's basically, I guess when I started thinking about this question of like, why do we care about skiing and who cares about it? There was this kind of bigger picture idea of like are there certain people who gravitate more towards risk and towards you know like this whole idea of no friends on a powder day like you're kind of only focusing on one thing and it turns out that there are and that everyone there's kind of the five major psychological traits and one of them is sensation seeking which is this kind of like need for action and adrenaline and motion um 
And that's something that everybody has in some kind of balance, but some people are just geared up for more of that. Like they actually need more sensation. And you see that in people, you know, like you see that in little kids on the playground or something like that. You know, the kids who are really launching themselves off the slide. Um, And so I think there is that kind of this idea that some people do actually need more stimulation and wouldn't be happy, you know, like sitting in an office every day in Kansas was not to, you know, bag on Kansas, but, but, um, was something that I kind of had thought about it. And then there is actually a fair bit of research to back it up and kind of not necessarily specifically about skiing. There's a little bit of ski related research kind of coming out of Canada, but there is a fair bit of kind of like study about this idea that there are people who just have different set points for that. And I think that also, you know, and kind of looking at the people that I know in the mountains and even doing the research, you can kind of, you can see that in people. Hmm. There were, there were so many moments of recognition in this book as, as someone who lives in a ski town. And I mean, you're kind of reading the book saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like just, you know, it, it resonates. Um, and of course, one of the sections I mean is about the immense mental health struggles of living in a place like this, the prevalence of things like depression, people who, who die by suicide. Um, I mean, one section from that kind of psychological section that stuck with me was the research you talk about on dopamine and the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, skiing can, can release this, this huge rush of dopamine, this rush to your brain, and that it'll actually then, your brain, because of evolution, the dopamine levels will then drop below the average level of dopamine because it's anticipating this this jolt coming again. And so so you write that the the baseline changes and it can get hard to get, get back to homeostasis, which was such an interesting neurological connection to, to the, the social aspect of all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, um, somebody explained it to me as dopamine's like a wanting chemical. It's not like a satisfying chemical. Mm-hmm. So like you go, you take a really amazing run, you get all these good turns. The second you get down to the chairlift, you're not like, that was great. I'm good. You're like, I want that again. So it kind of hits this, like, it's like the mouse hitting the pellet. It's like, you want it, you want it, you want it, you keep wanting it. Um, and yeah, that felt very true to my experience, I think. And I think it is, yeah, that kind of, it felt important too to kind of like acknowledge the, the dark sides of that and the kind of not as shiny sides of that and how that can lead into this like constant sense of chase and this really hard kind of comparison factor. I think it's really hard, you know, one of the, really hard things about for me when I was living in a ski town was kind of like you look around and it seems like everyone else is kind of on this constant cycle of achieving and doing more and going harder and getting better and kind of looking around and being like wait am I not as good as everyone else like am I you know like am I failing at this Mm -hmm. I think is something that can feel really present in places like this yeah has did the reporting of this book I mean has it changed how you think about skiing and, and also about your own history with skiing I mean, that's a hard question because it's also kind of the last three years of my life. So it's kind of impossible not to, and you know, a lot of this is sort of my, it's very first person, you know, like I'm a character in this. It's my, I kind of use myself as the lens to look at all these different kind of place-based issues. So yeah, I think it has, but it's like almost impossible to pull the thread out of this. And that was, that was one of the kind of, very cool things in being able to work on this, but also kind of one of the tricky things is that it's so, when you're so close to the material, it's hard to kind of like 
no, and you're too far in it. Well, I mean, that's like the, there's this like tension throughout the entire book, which I feel like is you saying skiing is this magical spiritual thing from this first person experience you've had that it is this thing that has materially changed your life. And then also looking at all the dark sides of it, both in terms of the, the social structures we build around it in terms of adrenaline seeking and, and kind of the, the negative, you know, hyper masculinity that builds up around it, the exclusion of people of color. I mean, all of these things that really make skiing culture toxic in a lot of ways. And, and you're, you're battling with these two things saying there's this thing I really love. There's all these things that are wrong with it. Um, and I guess the thing that I, I have to ask is, I mean, and then you, you know, you also have this whole section on climate change and how that is just in the background, really amping everything up. So just after doing all this reporting, I mean, what is your sense of what the skiing culture and the skiing industry needs to do to just be a sustainable industry and, and have another 50, 100 years of, of doing this thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a really, I think that's a really crucial question right now. And I think I, I appreciate that you kind of see that tension because I feel like that's something that I, I struggled with and I still struggle with. But I think in a lot of ways, skiing feels a little anemic right now, both in terms of, you know, like addressing climate, in terms of what the pathways are into the sport, in terms of who gets to access it because of pricing, because of, you know, like lift tickets, because of there's sort of these like social economic factors that are really squeezing who can even, you know, kind of like jump over the barrier to get into the sport and also who can live in these spaces and who can really commit to it. And I think that kind of, and who feels welcome too. Um, and I think that that, like any kind of <laughs> big structural change, it kind of has to come from everywhere. It has to come from top down from the resorts. It has to come from brands. It has to come from the community. It has to, you know, like I don't have a good, easy answer to that because I don't think it's an easy question. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, I think there, there is some kind of like, awareness raising around access and who gets to get into the sport that I think is at least coming more to the forefront of the conversation than it ever has before. I think there are these really big sort of economic crunches in terms of say like mountain town housing or things like that, that are becoming really unavoidable that I think, you know, something has to change and maybe it can be positive, but yeah, I think it's, I think it has to come from so many different, you know, government, culture, philanthropy, like it has to, (laughs) there's no one kind of like, oh, let's flip the switch and we'll be good. Yeah. You, um, you're pretty on a, this is not an unbiased account. I will say you, you, you do have some biases. One of them, you're pretty unabashedly against a lot of corporate skiing or at least some some incarnations of it you you have this paragraph it's also a very well-written paragraph um but you write um localism dies in the face of optimization rows of t-shirt shops and generic restaurants are mind-numbing and that facelessness feels nightmarish to me what i like most about showing up in a new town is trying to find the weird parts i want to be there with a local who knows her way around i don't want to go to an eerily familiar mcmountain um and you write in the book that a lot of those smaller, more quirky resort towns, they're, they're disappearing. We're just getting less of those smaller mountains. Um, so what do you, what do you think this future of skiing needs to be in terms of kind of that corporatization, that, that centralization? I mean, do you see that being an unavoidable trend? Do you see there being some sort of a, a happy medium that can play out over the next few decades? You want my cynical take or do you want my, 
Uh, I want your truthful take. take. Yeah, I think it, it feels hard to see how kind of increase, increased consolidation and corporate ownership doesn't create this big divide in resort management and ownership. And, you know, as sort of like an Altera or Vail or something like that, you know, groups resort together, they have this power to set ticket prices and to spread around funding that smaller resorts just can't compete with. Um, and I think that then a lot of these kind of group resorts that set their, you know, pass prices and ticket prices at a certain level, if a single day lift ticket to somewhere like Vail's 200 bucks, I think you're really pricing out a certain group of people who isn't a diehard, is new to the sport. And I think it gets kind of gets back to your last question about how do we kind of keep the sport alive and interesting and kind of like growing as the current generation of baby boomers, maybe at, ages out of the sport. And so I think that I want to say that the kind of like I grew up in a skiing in a, you know, state run ski resort in New Hampshire. It's still surviving and doing well, but um, but I think that if we lose those sort of smaller, local, lower budget places, we really lose a lot of the the pathways into the sport and also the things that keep it interesting. Yeah, and that feels scary to me, but it also in the kind of like future of capitalism, it feels hard to avoid. Well, I don't think that was my happy day. <laughs> It's okay. We're, we're realists here, not, not always optimists. Um, but I mean, you know, I, and I couldn't tell this. I finished the book and I actually, I don't know the answer to this question. So I want to know your answer. I mean, to what extent is this book almost a eulogy for the ski bum? And to what extent is it trying to chart a path forward? I mean, how optimistic are you about the future of the ski bum? Or do you just see a world where skiing just becomes dominated by upper middle class families going on vacation for the weekend? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, I don't have a, you know, I finished this book and was like, I don't have a, like, here's the one punch hit for it. But I think, I think, I don't think there's one, you know, like one pathway. I, one of the things that was most interesting to me about doing the research is that pretty much everyone I talked to, regardless of their age was like, you know, I was the last generation that could really be a ski bum. And that's, you know, people who moved to Aspen in the fifties and that's, you know, my generation who moved to the mountains in the early 2000s, I feel like there's always this kind of like, well, I'm just the last one who got in when the getting was good. So who's to say that that's not happening now too. And I think there are, you know, there are pressures on it now that feel a lot harder than they have in the past, I think, even just in my experience. And I think there are real factors that make it that, you know, like climate things that are going to, you know, if we don't have, if, this winter continues the way it has been where at least where I am, like it's looking pretty grim for skiing. We're the so, same yeah, right I don't, now. I don't want to think it's a eulogy, but I think there are things that are making it hard. And that's the tension too, right? In all of this, it's like, I still, even though I know it's dumb and struggling, I'm still obsessed with it. And there are, yeah, it's like, I don't want that to disappear. Hmm. Um, well, Heather Hansman is the author. Her book is Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. I knew we, we weren't even going to cover a tenth of it. There's so much material in this book and so many just delightful anecdotes. I mean, I mean, really, it's it's a book that, that um, if anything, I think is is an absolute pay-in to the, the wonders of skiing. I can tell that you're someone who really loves what you were writing about, and that's that's just a beautiful thing to read. So, Heather, thank you so much for, for joining us and talking about this. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And yeah, I'll be back in town March. I think the date is the 14th at the library. 
Wonderful. Yes, listeners, if you didn't hear, it's the selection for the one book, One Valley, that our Wilkinson Public Library does. So you have access to a free copy of the book if you want it. And if you want to give a copy of it to to one of your loved ones for the holidays, I hear that between the covers, our local bookstore is not a bad place to try and find a good book. Um, Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoysh. We've been talking all about snow this hour. I hope that snow comes. I hope we're all doing our snow dances. So thank you so much and um, enjoy the rest of your night, folks. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. Opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests. Join us again next week for another installment. And in the meantime, drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas. Oh, you, you.